Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. And I'm Sandrine Berges from Bill Kent University, Ankara. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Radical Philosophy is now on Twitter. You can find it by searching Rad Philosophy on Twitter and clicking follow to follow us and keep updated with the show. Thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Susie Kilmister, about autonomy. Welcome to the program. Sue, would you have a definition of autonomy? As I'm sure your listeners are aware if they've been tuning in, with most things in philosophy it gets a bit hard to give definitions, (laughs) at least definitions that everyone's going to agree on because there's lots of different theories, lots of different kind of competitor accounts of what autonomy is. But I guess about the probably the least controversial way to define autonomy uh, is in terms of something like self-determination or or self-governance. And we can maybe see a little bit more clearly what that means if we contrast it to what it's not. So when we say that someone's self-governed, what we typically mean is that they're not being governed by anyone or anything else. So in this way of thinking, you wouldn't be autonomous if, say, every desire or every goal or every action that you did was or had was just kind of implanted in you by someone else. So the idea is that you're meant to be the author of your own actions. So that's the idea of being self-governed rather than governed by someone else. But we also need to look at the kind of governed side of things. A lot of people will say you're not autonomous if your whole life is basically just kind of wafting by like a leaf in the breeze. You're supposed to actually be directing the course of your own life, not just kind of acting randomly. So that's the kind of general idea of autonomy is being, being in charge, in control of your own actions and your own life. What was it that inspired you to study autonomy So I started from a a pretty practical problem. I'd just finished my PhD uh, at the University of Melbourne, which was on minority rights, so a kind of uh, issue in political philosophy. And one of the questions that came up in the thesis, but I didn't really have a chance to properly answer, was how we should think about balancing the rights of, say, religious and cultural freedom against the rights of children to receive certain kinds of education or at least not to be kind of shut off from from certain kinds of options or living certain kinds of lives. So I kind of just sidelined that in the thesis because it was too hard. And then I thought, oh, once I'm finished, I'll just go back and I'll try and try and deal with that question a little bit more carefully. But I realised that I wasn't going to be able to grapple with that unless I had a kind of better understanding of what autonomy is and why we might care about it because a lot of the reasons people give for making sure, for instance, that, that children get certain kinds of education or or aren't shut off from certain kinds of options is that this is going to be damaging to their autonomy. So so we need to know what autonomy is to know how to protect it. 
But in the end, I got so kind of wrapped up, um, as I guess philosophers often do, wrapped up in trying to answer this question of what autonomy actually is, that I never actually managed to get back to the original kind of pressing issue that, that prompted the, uh, the searching in the first place. But it was a kind of fascinating enough uh, kind of detour that I, I don't mind having got a bit sidetracked there. Uh, so do you, do you think autonomy is a human right? A human right. I think that's a, that's a really interesting but, but kind of a difficult question, in part because of this disagreement there is about what autonomy is. But there's definitely a, a kind of strand of human rights theory that actually takes autonomy not just to be a human right, to be, but to be the kind of central human right, the one that all other kind of human rights are, are downstream of or, or derived from. And I think that that strand of thinking about human rights um, owes a lot to the, the philosopher Immanuel Kant. So the basic idea here is that we need to explain why human beings have human rights as opposed to kind of other non-human animals. So what's special about human beings? That means we have human rights. And the answer that some philosophers give is that that special something about human beings is autonomy. So we're kind of self-governed. We're able to direct the course of our own lives in the way that non-human animals can't. That's why we have human rights and non-human animals don't. So that gives a really, really, really central place to autonomy in human rights theory. But these theories will also typically say that the kind of purpose of human rights is to protect our autonomy. So they'll try and explain all the human rights that we have in terms of our autonomy. So they'll say, look, we need to have freedom from slavery as a human right because that's the most obvious one, right? If someone else is literally controlling your life, then you're not in control of it yourself. These same theories, though, will say, look, we can explain why freedom from torture is a human right because part of what torture does to people is kind of destroy their capacity to kind of care about their own lives or direct their own lives in a certain kind of way. Like pain is kind of debilitating um, in, a, in an important kind of way. Um, and likewise, these, these same theories can, can justify something like a right to food and shelter and water because obviously we can't do a very good job of governing our own lives, directing our own lives if, if we can't, you know, survive or, or kind of if we're just scraping, scraping by. So we have this kind of picture of human rights here where we have human rights because we're autonomous and then, and then human rights protect our autonomy. I'm actually, to be honest, a little sceptical of this way of thinking about human rights for, no, for, two, for two different reasons. One of these is that um, one of these is that if we end up saying that we only have human rights because we're autonomous, then we end up kind of committed to the idea that there are some human beings who end up not having human rights. So the problem here is that no one plausibly thinks that, say, newborn infants are autonomous. They just don't have the right kind of cognitive capacities. They're not in charge of their own lives. They're not making kind of decisions about how to lead their own lives. They're not reflecting on what they want to do. In a lot of ways, they're kind of just the same as kind of non-human animals like dogs or cats in terms of their kind of cognitive capacities. So if we think we have human rights because we're autonomous, we just rule out infants from having human rights. And, that, and that's kind of problematic. And also, there's a kind of another problem, which is that there are at least some human beings who are never going to be autonomous, right? So, so we might say with infants, well, they might not be autonomous now, but they will be. So they kind of get in that way. But when we think about people who've got really significant cognitive impairments, um, it's at least plausible that they don't have the kind of cognitive capacities that underpin something like autonomy. And so one thing that you see with these kinds of theories that make autonomy central is either pretending this isn't a problem, that happens sometimes, or just coming out and saying, look, people with severe cognitive disabilities are not the right kind of 
agents to to have human rights. And I think that's a really, really problematic conclusion. I think we should be looking for kind of different kinds of theories that don't end up pushing us to say that like the most vulnerable people in society don't don't have human rights. But I also think there's a kind of secondary problem as well with, with saying that we have a human right to autonomy. And that's because, like I mentioned earlier on, there's so much debate about what autonomy actually is. And a lot of, I think, unclarity about what autonomy is. It kind of means different things to different people. So there are certain ways of thinking about what autonomy is where I think actually it's probably not that problematic to say, well, you have a human right to that thing. But there are other kinds of theories that kind of restrict being autonomous to people who are leading certain kinds of lives. So we'll say, for instance, that someone who's choosing to be in a subordinate relationship it just isn't autonomous by, by definition. And so if we want our theory of human rights to be kind of neutral between different kind of cultures and religions and, and belief systems, then I think we want to be really careful about centering human rights on this kind of way of life that not everyone necessarily wants. So I think, yeah, the, whether or not we have a human right to autonomy is going to depend a little bit on what we think human, what autonomy, what we think autonomy is. Um, it's going to yeah, change a little bit the content of, of what we're asking for. Yeah, you mentioned before about the different theories. Could you go into a bit more detail explaining about the different theories of autonomy? Sure. Um, so I think it'll be useful to focus here on theories of autonomous action. That, that's probably the, the best place to start. There are also theories of what it means to be a kind of autonomous self, where we look at the kind of whole package of someone and ask whether their whole life is autonomous. But, but the easiest starting point is just thinking about particular actions. So am I autonomous? Am I acting autonomously when I go to work? Am I acting autonomously when I get married? Am I acting autonomously in this particular kind of domain or in this particular context? There's two kind of competitor theories here, uh, two kind of broad types of theory of, of autonomous action, procedural theories and the substantive theories. So I'll give you a taste of the uh, kind of one of the most influential uh, versions of the proceduralist theory. This is from the philosopher Harry Frankfurt. To put it in kind of basic terms, for Frankfurt to be kind of acting autonomously or to be self-governed means that we're doing what we really want to do. Right? That's a simple way of putting it. Are we doing what we really want to do? But there's lots of ways we might kind of interpret that. So here's what Frankfurt really means. So, so take a kind of example here. Imagine you're on a diet and someone offers you a slice of chocolate cake. I'm sure it's happened to all of us. Um, you want a piece. You really, really, really want a piece. But that's not, for Frankfurt, the kind of really want that matters. So for Frankfurt, it's not about the strength of the desire for eating the chocolate cake that would make eating the chocolate cake an autonomous action. He thinks what we need to do is ask ourselves, do you want to want to eat the chocolate cake? Or to put it slightly differently, we're supposed to kind of recognise that we have a, this desire, this kind of immediate urge, so to speak, and then we need to kind of step back from it, reflect on it, and, and ask ourselves, is this the desire that we want to act on? Or are we the kind of person who wants to act on our desire for chocolate cake or a desire for heroin or whatever it is that our desire is for? Do we want that to be the desire that we act on? So the, the picture he's kind of painting here of human life, really, is that we often have these conflicting urges, right? We want to do this thing and we want to do that thing. And we kind of want to do this, but we also don't want to do it at the same time. 
And his picture is basically uh, what sets human life apart from other kinds of lives, he thinks, is that we have this capacity to step back, right? We're not just acting automatically in accordance with our strongest urges. We're not just getting kind of sucked around by our urges. At least that's the hope, is that we're not just getting sucked around by our urges. But we we can stop and think about, do we want to be the kind of person who acts on these desires? And the thought is meant to be that, like, you know, take take your dog, and dog, dogs have all sorts of charms. But when your dog wants to do something, it may or may not act on that. But the, uh, the picture Frank Vogt is suggesting is that your dog's not sitting there asking itself, uh, do I want to be the kind of dog that rolls around, right, on the bird carcass, right? It wants to, and it knows it shouldn't, right? In some sense, it's got that much complexity. But it's not reflecting, in a sense, on the kind of dog it wants to be. It's not developing what Frankfurt calls these higher order desires, these desires about its immediate urges. So this is what, in a sense, Frankfurt makes us human. It's distinctive about us. We have these kind of second order desires. So in, in, in summary then, for, for Frankfurt, if we're, we're acting autonomously if the urge that we act on or the desire that we act on is one that we have this kind of higher order endorsement of. So our, our kind of urge has to get this tick of approval right we have to step back from it and give it this ticket tick of approval so that's been a really really influential way of thinking about autonomy and one of the things that's really i think important to stress about this view and one of the reasons why i think this kind of view is not as problematic in it say something like a human rights framework is that on this view there's no particular kinds of desires that are automatically ruled out as not necessarily non-autonomous so it's at least conceivable that for any particular desire, you might want to have that desire and act on it. So on, on Frankfurt's style of account, it's at least conceivable. It might not be, be probable, but it's conceivable that someone could autonomously choose to be a slave. right? Or you might autonomously act on, on an addiction. right? The, the problem's not the addiction per se. The problem Frankfurt thinks with addiction is that usually, not always, but usually that addictive urge is one that people don't want to have. So when they kind of act against that kind of higher order judgment, that's what makes it non-autonomous. But if you endorse your addiction, Frankfurt says, then, then you know, you're autonomous. Other things might be wrong with it, but your autonomy is not the problem. So, so on this view, basically, we only have to look at what's inside your head. And it's only about the kind of structure of your desires. That's all that really matters. But there's another kind of approach to autonomy, and this is, um, for the most part, emerged out of uh, kind of feminist theories of autonomy. Uh, though not all feminists are on board with, with this way of doing it, but the, but the most prominent accounts are, are kind of feminist versions. And what they object to, in large part, is this kind of content neutrality. They object to the idea that you can be autonomous, it's appropriate to think of you as autonomous, kind of no matter what you're desiring or believing or valuing and where those desires and beliefs and values kind of came from in the first place. So here's an example of uh, an alternative. This is uh, from the philosopher Natalie Stoljar, who's another Australian. Um, They're living in Canada um, at the moment. So her theory basically says that if I have a desire to do something, but that desire is due to me having internalised some kind of false or pernicious kind of norm then I'm not autonomous when I'm acting on it. And that's true, she says, even if I have this kind of higher order Frankfurt-style endorsement of my immediate 
kind of urge or desire. So I'll give you a really basic example. It might be a little personal, but, but we'll go there anyway. So we can imagine, for example, that as I did this morning, I kind of looked at my legs and thought, oh dear, I can't go out in public like this. I'd better shave them, right? And so there's a desire in some sense, a, a, um, I wouldn't quite call it an urge, but a, a kind of a preference to shave my legs. What Stolja is going to say is that if that preference is due to me having internalised some kind of belief that appearing kind of unshaven makes me a bad woman somehow, or like I have to present myself a certain way to be a good woman. And if we assume that, that that's a false and pernicious norm, then I wouldn't be acting autonomously, right, in, in that kind of um, morning preparation when I chose to shave my legs. So it's not about, in a sense, how I feel about it. It's not about whether I really, if I thought about it carefully, would reject it. It's about this idea that we can internalise these really problematic norms from our society, a lot of them kind of oppressive, a lot of them, particularly for women, trying to mould us in certain kind of ways. And people like Stolja are going to say, look, if you're just being kind of moulded by these oppressive social structures, the fact that you've internalised these doesn't suffice to make you autonomous when you act on them, right? Because you're really just kind of reflecting these problematic social norms. So those are the kind of two main competitor theories. There's the ones that say, look, we just shouldn't be concerned about what it is that you desire, what it is that you want, what your kind of intentions are to do. That doesn't matter. All that matters is, in a sense, the relationship you stand into your own your own actions. And Frankfurt's a kind of you know, prime example of one of those. And then there's this other cluster of theories that say, actually, what autonomy is trying to capture is this idea that you're free, right, from these external kinds of constraints. And external constraints can come in lots of different forms. Some of them are more surreptitious than others. And a kind of oppressive ideology is just one of these forms of kind of outside governance that we need to be really concerned about. So Stolja is an example of someone who's tried to kind of make sense of that, develop her own theory of autonomy that kind of says, look, if basically you're just a kind of you're just reflecting something oppressive in your actions or your desires, then, then that rules you out. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking with Dr Susie Kilmister about autonomy. Could you explain about the four different distinct ways that paternalism may threaten autonomy Sure. So for listeners who might not have a kind of firm grip on what, what paternalism is or, or what it's meant to be, when philosophers talk about paternalism, they usually mean an action that kind of overrides someone else's autonomy and that's done in order to kind of protect that person or to promote their well-being. So some examples of things that would kind of count as paternalistic, you might start to sense that, that maybe I haven't had breakfast yet. But anyway, um, so imagine that uh, your friend's about to go for their second slice of chocolate cake and you decide that, you know, really they shouldn't, it's not very good for them. So you kind of whisk it away from them. That would be a kind of paternalistic thing. They've made a decision. They want to eat the chocolate cake. You take it away in some sense for their own good. That's considered paternalistic. Or another kind of example, it would be paternalistic to kind of hide your partner's mobile phone from them because you think, they're playing too much Candy Crush, right? And like it'd be better for them if they got back to work. Again, right, your partner's made a choice. Right? They're living their life the way they want and you come in and you'll say, no, no, I'm going to you kind of sneakily try and remove that option from them. So those are kind of maybe slightly trivial personal examples. But a lot of uh, philosophers worry that the state itself can also be paternalistic uh, and worry about whether or not that's a problem. 
So, for instance, there'll be people who say that things like seatbelt laws are paternalistic, right? People should just be free to make this decision for themselves. And there's something problematic about the state kind of overriding people's judgments, people's decisions to take risks or not take risks. Same with things like bike helmet laws. People sometimes complain that we shouldn't have bike helmet laws because this is the state, in a sense, trying to replace our own judgment about what's good for us. In the US, there's, there's, I don't know if we have it so much here, but talk about having like taxes on soft drinks and stuff or limits on the size soft drinks you can buy in order to kind of tackle obesity. These are the kinds of things that people get upset about and they get upset because they think of it as kind of paternalistic, right? The idea is that we're meant to be able to decide for ourselves, even if that's a decision to do something that's in some sense not, you know, the best for us. You know, we, can, we should be able to make decisions to lead a kind of less than optimally healthy life if that's what we want to do and someone shouldn't, shouldn't try to stop it. So people have typically thought that paternalism is a problem and that we shouldn't be paternalistic because of how it conflicts with autonomy. So the idea is that autonomy and paternalism are kind of in, in, con- in contrast with one another. Paternalism is wrong precisely because it kind of overrides autonomy. Um, so I've, I've kind of argued in, in a recent paper that I've written that people who work on paternalism, so they're coming at this question from the kind of angle of what is paternalism and why is it problematic, tend to have a kind of simplified idea of what autonomy is. And that if we kind of scratch the surface a little bit and are, and look at kind of what people who work on autonomy think autonomy is, it's not actually that simple. And so there are different ways I think we can understand this conflict. Doesn't mean that there isn't a conflict, but I think it kind of gets a little bit more gets a little bit more complicated. So one way to kind of understand what's going on when when the state prevents us from say cycling without a helmet is to understand it as something like kind of frustrating our autonomy. So this makes, I think, most sense if we if we go back to the Frankfurt-style view, right? So the idea here would be, look, if I desire to kind of feel the wind in my hair when I'm cycling, right, and I know that conflicts with some kind of desire to, like, lead a long and healthy life, but really when I step back and, and reflect on it, no, 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 I really do endorse that desire to be a little bit reckless, then then my helmetless bicycle riding would be an autonomous action for me, right? And And the thought here is that when the state stops me doing that, it's preventing me from kind of exercising my autonomy. It's preventing me from doing something that would have been an autonomous thing for me to do. So it kind of gets in the way. It blocks me from doing this autonomous thing. A different way to think about it, though, and I think this is um, in the background a little bit, particularly for people who are worried about the kind of state making these health-related decisions or kind of setting up these kind of constraints on how we eat and what we eat and when we exercise and all this kind of stuff is a worry that this kind of overarching state paternalism kind of stunts our, the development of our autonomy. And here we're thinking about autonomy not as something that we kind of do in a moment but as a kind of general capacity that we have. So on this kind of way of thinking about it, autonomy is something that doesn't just kind of come naturally or automatically. We have to learn how to do it, how to be autonomous. It takes practice. Um, and if we have to kind of build up certain kinds of cognitive skills. We have to get good at reflecting on our own, on ourselves and our own desires. And we also have to, you know, get a bit of willpower. We have to learn to kind of go with the desire we endorse, not the one that's necessarily strongest in the moment. So this, this takes some kind of work and practice. And the worry here is that the more that the state kind of comes in and makes these difficult decisions for us, the more that it kind of prevents us from even encountering situations where we might be tempted 
to go against our better judgment, like preventing us from eating that second slice of chocolate cake, right? We're never going to learn to do this for ourselves. We're never going to kind of get the, develop the willpower to, you know, exercise our own will, exercise our own autonomy. So we've got the preventing us from acting in certain kind of ways. That's meant to be bad in and of itself. It's kind of bigger worry that the state might just stunt our kind of capacities. The third one, uh, I'll go through a bit more quickly, that, that's just the idea that there's something disrespectful about paternalism. And I think that's also, we hear that in people's complaints about state's actions and other people's actions, right? Like when I, if I hide my partner's phone, right, okay, I've prevented him doing something he wants, but that's kind of not necessarily capturing the wrongness of what I've done. It's really patronising, right? It's really disrespectful. It's suggesting I think my judgment's better than his, right? Replacing my judgment with his. So that kind of patronising feel of paternalism is something we can capture with the idea that it's disrespectful to assume someone can't act autonomously for themselves or disrespectful to think they won't do that in a kind of good way. So there's the disrespect thing. And then finally, there's the idea, um, the kind of basic idea that we kind of have a right to make our own decisions, that this is something that it's our kind of authority to decide for ourselves how we want to live our lives. So there's a kind of overriding this entitlement to decide for ourselves is meant to be part of the problem with paternalism. So there it's not so much about whether or not the action would have been autonomous at all. That doesn't really come into it. It's about that I should have been in the position to decide kind of how I acted going forward and preventing me from from making my own decisions, acting on my own judgments is kind of intrinsically meant to be wrong. One of the problems with some of this, though, is that like I said, the theories of paternalism tend to take a slightly simplistic view of what autonomy is. And why this gets a little bit complicated is that on any actual theory of autonomy, there's going to be plenty of stuff we do, plenty of stuff we kind of decide to do that's not actually autonomous after all, right? So it's easy with Stolja. We can see that, right? We saw the example that, like, my shaving my legs in the morning wasn't an autonomous action. But if that's right, then it wouldn't be paternalistic to stop me. Right, because if it's not autonomous and there's nothing to kind of conflict with, right, it would be fine. But that still seems kind of wrong, right? It still seems wrong to say that, sure, you know, we, we recognise that you're acting on the basis of this oppressive ideology you've internalised, so now it's fine for us to stop you acting. That seems kind of a bit dodgy. And even for someone like Frankfurt, right, he's going to be fine with the leg shaving, but there's other things he's going to count as, as non-autonomous, like maybe my chocolate cake eating if if I'm kind of breaking a diet or something. But even then you might think, like, Still, there's something kind of off about your friend or your partner, right, saying, I know you really don't want to eat it, so I'm going to take it away from you. So I think there's kind of more work to be done there philosophically about what the relationship between paternalism and autonomy is actually meant to be. Maybe there's something else about paternalism or some other notion of autonomy that we need to kind of make sense of, like, what's really gets to us about those kind of interventions. Yeah. Oh, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Not a problem. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is part one of a two-part interview, and I've been speaking with Dr. Susie Kilmister about autonomy. Hope you've enjoyed the program today. I've certainly enjoyed your company, and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway. <laughs>